Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Word of God for our study this Sunday is our second reading, 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 7, as printed in your bulletins and already read. Dear friends in Christ, it is one of the objections most often made to our practice of closed communion. They ignore all of the theological and doctrinal issues and just get down to what they consider to be the core. What is it to you anyway? What I believe and what I'm doing when I take the Lord's Supper is is just between me and Him. That's all that's important, isn't it? Just me and Jesus? Now, it's hard to know how to respond to that, not because there's no answer, but because there are many answers, all equally true and equally no. In the first place, the doctrinal things matter because they tell us what we are talking about, what is actually happening and what's actually received in the Lord's Supper, and that pretty much has to be established before anything else. And next, there's the matter of responsibility. Since it is possible to receive the supper to the harm of your soul, those who administer the sacrament have a solemn responsibility to admit only the qualified and not to admit the unqualified. And there's the issue of confession and fellowship. The act of communing together is not just an efficient way to handle lots of people at once. It is a union of like-minded believers, a proclamation of faith, and an expression of the joy that we have being brothers and sisters in Christ. Receiving the sacrament is certainly about the blessings that Jesus gives each of us individually, but the supper is his gift to His church, administered by His servants and eaten and drunk by His people who are united in faith around Him. It is hardly just me and Jesus. But communion is hardly the only thing that suffers from a just me and Jesus attitude or philosophy. Many Christians, and some who call themselves Christians, but who in reality are not believers at all, many routinely discount or discard points of biblical teaching that they find disagreeable, usually blaming the church for the problem, and and they rationalize it all by saying that their faith is really just between them and Jesus. And if they are all right with what they believe or how they behave, well then, he must be all right with it too, because it certainly feels right. And after all, there's no higher authority than that, right? There is also, of course, the situation when church members don't like something that their pastor or another church leader does or says, especially if it is something that impacts their lives personally. They then determine, not on the basis of Scripture or theology, but other things, they determine that they are not going to go along with it, or will oppose it, or perhaps even leave the church over it. 
And they feel that it is entirely appropriate to judge their leaders that way because, well, faith is just them and Jesus, which leaves no higher authority in the church than them, which means that they get to decide what is right based on what they feel is right. This is basically the problem that Paul was addressing in the first part of his first letter to the Corinthians. Without regard either for the written word of God or the God-given authority of the leaders that he had sent them, especially the apostleship of Paul, they each felt that they were right to judge for themselves whom to follow and what to listen to, believe, and do. They reasoned that since they had the gospel just as much as anybody else had the gospel, that it was just me and Jesus for all of them, with no intervening authorities or responsibilities toward or or respect due others. The Holy Spirit has Paul call this attitude what it actually is in verse 6. Arrogant. The Greek word there means puffed up. We have a similar idea in English when we say someone has a big head or perhaps has gotten too big for his britches. To judge one of God's servant leaders to be beneath you or to be beneath some other leader that you prefer is an exercise of and an excess of pride not an exercise of any kind of God-given independent authority. If such a leader has departed from Scripture, okay, then we let God's Word judge him. If he has proven himself unfaithful to his calling, then the congregation together might be called to exercise their authority over him. But the individual sheep of the flock does not presume to judge the shepherd that God has given them as defective or unworthy of respect just because they don't like him, don't like his leading, prefer someone else, or just don't want him applying God's word to them. You know, that solid scriptural imagery of sheep and shepherd, which we had in in the other two readings this morning, It reinforces this point powerfully. Christians are not called to be independent, autonomous actors going wherever their own impulses lead them. Christians are followers. Followers first and foremost of Jesus, but then because of that, followers of his under-shepherds and others that he has put in place to serve them by leading them. It has always been this way. A reading from Numbers shows God providing leaders for his people to follow. Our gospel from Matthew shows Jesus calling his disciples and then sending them out to gather more disciples, more to follow them in following Christ. The Great Commission at the end of Matthew, which we read last Sunday, shows the same. The book of Acts the Acts of the Apostles, which we considered throughout the Easter season, shows how the Holy Spirit used the Apostles to bring sinners to salvation 
and into the church of Christ, and then to lead those new Christians through their teaching and example. It has never been just me and Jesus. No one baptizes him or herself. No one offers him or herself absolution. No one communes him or herself. The knowledge that you have of Scripture, you have because the Holy Spirit made sure that someone taught you. Someone gave you a Bible. Someone taught you how to interpret it. And someone called by God preached it to you. And so Paul calls us all to humility. When we start thinking that we're so special that we can be Christians independent of any authority or fellowship, he asks, what we have that we did not receive from someone else, from one of God's chosen servants? And if we recognize that we did not get the gospel or our status as one of God's people all by ourselves, why then would we boast? Why would we live and think and choose and speak as though we did? Now, obviously, there is a a practical problem trying to live as part of the fellowship of believers with such independent thinking. There is a a group in Seattle right now that is demonstrating that autonomy just doesn't work, especially not when other people are involved. But the more important problem with this attitude is spiritual. It is sin to arrogate to yourself authority that God has not given to you, and, and even more, that he has given to others. And it's actually kind of tragically ironic for a Christian to do that. Because the life of faith starts with humility. With the recognition that each one of us is an unworthy sinner. Guilty of great sins, worthy of death and hell. And deserving no kind of honor reward or respect from God whom we have disobeyed, distrusted, and disrespected. Only when we have confessed our worthlessness and our impotence before the Lord are we able to take hold of the Lord's loving gift of grace, to take hold of free and full salvation in Jesus Christ. What he achieved for us by dying on the cross and rising from the dead is given to us by faith, which is itself a gift to us. So as believers, to lift ourselves up over other believers, especially over the servant leaders that God has placed over us, it's not just sinful pride, but it's a denial, or at least a a forgetting of everything about how we came to be believers. It just doesn't fit. It's not who we are. So then, just as we appreciate that we needed God's intervention to gain salvation, He wants us to recognize our need for prophets and apostles, 
and for pastors and teachers and elders in the church, the shepherds that he places over us to bless us through their leadership. Now this starts by not going beyond what is written. We stick to the Scriptures and what God has inspired to be written there, neither adding to nor subtracting from it, nor, for that matter, ignoring it or replacing it with our own improvements. And the authority of a pastor over his congregation is the authority of the Word of God. That's why Paul can so confidently say here that it, it doesn't matter how any human court of opinion might judge his ministry, nor even how he himself might judge his ministry. All that matters is the Lord's evaluation of his faithfulness. And that he will not know and we will not know until the great day when Christ returns and all is revealed. And those who have been faithful faithful in leading or faithful in following, will on that day each receive praise from God. Now I have to admit that I have some discomfort and unease preaching this text and topic. It might seem rather self-serving, as though I have a vested interest here trying to serve my own interests. I am thankful that we are not, at least to my knowledge, that we are not currently suffering a crisis of leadership in our congregation. So this should not come across as, as me using God's word to, to try to settle some scores or, or serve my own interests or anything. That would be an unfaithful use of Scripture. Instead, what this passage impresses upon me and upon every one of Christ's under-shepherds is the tremendous responsibility of the ministry of the gospel that has been entrusted to us. We are not just servants of the congregation. We, Paul says, are servants of Christ. Satisfying the expectations of people isn't always easy, but it is doable. Satisfying the standards and expectations of the Son of God is something else entirely. And stewards of God's mysteries? Wow. We don't have time now to go deep into the doctrine of the ministry, but, but this is part of why we don't just gather on Sunday mornings and say, okay, who today wants to bring someone into the family of God through baptism? Any volunteers? That's why we don't say, um, well, how about anybody uh, to preside as the Lord takes mere bread and wine and gives us his body and blood in with and under them for the forgiveness of our sins, life, and salvation? Anybody? No. God has placed responsibility for these mysteries into the hands of those who he has called specifically, solemnly, and graciously to shepherd his people. It is no small thing to be faithful in this stewardship. So practically, what does all this mean for the members of a Christian congregation today? 
The same thing it meant for the congregation in Corinth that Paul wrote these words to. It starts with appreciating that all of value that each of us has is a gift of God. And the gospel that gives us salvation in Christ is something each has received equally. But there follows from that an appreciation that we believers are all followers. As the church follows Jesus, so church members follow those who lead them to Jesus in His Word and sacraments. We judge them only by the standards of the Scriptures. And we not only respect and value them as gracious gifts of God to His people and to each of us individually, but we listen to and trust their teaching. As it says in Hebrews 13, Remember your leaders who spoke the Word of God to you. Carefully consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. But we also appreciate and follow these leaders because we recognize the responsibility that they bear as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. As it says again in Hebrews 13, Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as men who will give an account. Obey them so that they may do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no benefit to you. So instead of just me and Jesus, the Christian thinks in terms of me, Jesus, and all of the people that he has used to bring me to faith and to nurture and guide me in that faith. The church member thanks God not just for someone to preach and teach the Scriptures to him or her on Sunday mornings, but thanks God for someone to sit beside her at the hospital and lead her to the quiet waters of comfort in God's Word. Thanks God for someone to help him understand the Lord's view of his life and his behavior so he can make the changes he needs. Thanks God for someone to counsel and guide them as they make big decisions about marriage and children, job offers and retirement plans. And so we pray, as Jesus told His disciples to pray, we pray for workers in His harvest field. Which means we pray for His servant leaders to work among us. And we pray for us to joyfully, faithfully follow them, work with them, value and honor them, so that at the end, when the Lord returns, we may all together join in praise over what God has achieved in and through and for us. We will all rejoice together, us, them, and Jesus. Amen. Please rise. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.